The sermon tonight, the Bible study tonight, really serves the purpose of building up believers. You know, when we talk about after a person gets saved and joins the church and they get baptized, how can we help them as newborn babes in Christ to grow and to develop in their faith? Well, the primary answer to that question, the primary way that we grow in our faith is through the Word of God. The Bible says that God's Word is like spiritual milk for us. And just like a ba- a milk helps a baby to grow, the Bible, God's Word, helps us to grow in our faith. And so tonight, we're going to be thinking about a subject that hopefully will help build up your faith. Now, the subject is doubt. And I always like to begin, as I'm, if we're dealing with a topic, to come up with some kind of a definition. What do I mean by doubt? When the Bible talks about doubt, what is, what is it exactly that we're talking about? So here's the definition we're going to work with tonight. Doubt is when we question the Word of God, the goodness of God, or the ability of God to take care of us. Now, I want you to think about that just for a moment. That's what doubt is. It's a question. We question in our mind the Word of God. Maybe we read a promise in the Scripture. There are over 7,000 promises, maybe more than that, but the uh, study I went with has well over 7,000 promises in the Word of God. And so sometimes we read one of these promises and we question it. We question the Word of God. Sometimes in life we don't so much question the Word of God, but we question the goodness of God. God, if you're a good God, God, if you're a loving Father, why would you have allowed me or my loved one to go through whatever it is that we're going through? And I think we've all asked that question, and maybe we don't verbalize it quite that way. Maybe we don't verbalize it at all, but we wonder, God, why, if you're really good, would you let something really bad happen? Well, all that is, it's doubt. And then sometimes we question the ability of God, not that we question whether or not God has ability, but we question whether or not He will use His ability to help us with whatever it is that we may face in life. So that's the definition of doubt. It's when we question the Word of God, we question the goodness of God, or we question the ability of God to help us through whatever we're going through and to take care of us. So that being the definition, let me ask you this question. If you have ever doubted, now I know when we talk about doubting, we're talk, we always think about doubting your salvation. And that's one of the things that you could doubt. But you could doubt a lot of other things besides just your salvation. So if that's the definition of doubt, when we question the Word of God, the goodness of God, or the ability of God to take care of us, how many of you would say that you have ever at any time in your life since you became a Christian doubted? Just raise your hand, okay? And those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're preaching next, Sunday, next Wednesday night. And you tell us, how do you do that? How do you never doubt? Because I think doubting is one of those things that to most of us comes quite naturally. You know, when we think about some of these terms in the Bible, doubt, worry, fear, anxiety. If you think about it, they're just really different sides of the same coin. They're different aspects of the same thing. We're worrying, we're concerned, we're doubting, we're anxious, we're afraid, but it's all, it stems from this. Remember this, and this will come out much later tonight in our Bible, or a little bit later in our Bible study tonight. Doubt is the mother sin. Doubt is the sin that gives birth to many other sins. Sometimes we'll see a visible sin. Maybe we'll see uh, somebody lose their temper. Maybe we'll hear about somebody having an affair. 
Maybe we'll see somebody be rude to somebody else. We, 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 we'll hear about somebody lying or cheating or something like that. And so these are what we call the sins that, 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 we are, that are more obvious. But all of those sins, most of the time, if not all of the time, were given birth by doubt. Doubt is the mother's sin. Now, as I was thinking about doubt today, this thought came to my mind, and I don't know that I've ever thought of it quite this way, but I do believe it to be true. Only believers struggle with doubt. Only believers struggle with doubt. The person who is an unbeliever, they're not doubting the Word of God or the goodness of God or the ability of God. If somebody has made a decision to be an atheist and they say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the Bible, I don't believe in the afterlife, I don't believe in any of that. Well, that person's not struggling with doubt. That person's not struggling with anything. As far as doubt's concerned, that person has made their mind up. The doubter is adamant. He is clear. I don't believe. And there's no struggle going on in the mind of the doubter, the, the, of the unbeliever. The doubter, on the other hand, is, is different than that. The doubter struggles to believe. He struggles to know if God's Word is true, if God's goodness is real, and if God's ability is going to work in his or her particular case. But the unbeliever, now you need to think about what I'm saying. The unbeliever, we're trying to reach 10% of the people who live in a five-mile radius of our church. We want to reach a lot more than that, but that's a good place to start. And we're talking about in a five-mile radius of our church, 150,000 people. And we're saying, or at least I said last week, I would estimate of the 150,000 in that radius, probably 130,000 of those do not regularly go to church. Now, many of them are saved. They've just gotten out of church for whatever reason. But I would say of that 130,000 unchurched group, that there would be hundreds, maybe thousands, who are atheists. They have made up their mind. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in heaven and hell. They don't believe in the Bible. And what I'm saying to you tonight is that person is not struggling with doubt. They've made their mind up. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have other things going on in life that they're struggling with. They don't, they're struggling with the fact they don't have any peace because the Bible says there's no peace for the unsaved. They're struggling with the fact that they, know they have no hope for life after this life because if they don't believe in the afterlife or heaven... How would they have that? They're struggling with guilt because they know they've done things wrong, and how can that guilt be forgiven? So they struggle with that. But I'm telling you one thing that an atheist does not struggle with is doubt. An atheist is clear on that issue. They don't believe. So there's no struggle with doubt. Believers, though, do sometimes struggle with doubt. Because what is doubt? Doubt is, is not only questioning, can we believe? Doubt is really faith that is trying to believe. It's, if you didn't have some faith, you wouldn't be doubting. And so, if you think about it, doubt is actually a backwards affirmation of faith. We only doubt those things that deep down we really believe. And so tonight, if you're here and you're, let's just take salvation. Let's just say you're doubting your salvation. Now, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. But the fact that you're doubting your salvation, now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're saved because you could be doubting and you're not saved. But just because you're doubting your salvation, that doesn't necessarily mean 
that you're not saved. We tend to only doubt those things that we really believe. So I say all that tonight to say, if you're struggling with doubt, and we just, most everybody in here raise their hands and say, sometimes we do struggle with that. We do wonder about this. What that is really saying to you is, at heart, you have faith. There's belief in there, but that belief is really, really struggling. Now, if you'll open your Bibles tonight to the book of James, I want us to begin in James. We're going to work our way to the Gospel of John, but I want us to begin in James, and I want to mention tonight six problems with doubt. For those of you listening at home, I wish you would get a notebook and a pen if you're a note taker at all, and I'm not going to belabor any of these six points or these six truths or these six observations, but I want to mention tonight six problems with doubt. If you begin to question or if you are questioning the Word of God, the character of God, and the ability of God, you're going to see as we just click through this list tonight that some of this, if not all of this, is true in your particular case. Because remember what I said, doubt is not only a sin in and of itself, it is the mother sin. It is the sin that gives birth to many of the other problems that we have in life. And so the first thing I would say is simply this, doubt divides the mind. Doubt divides the mind. Now, James here uh, in, is speaking. James now is the half-brother of Jesus. And remember, James himself was not a believer until after the resurrection. And then he became a believer. He became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. He is the one who wrote this book. This is James. Now, this is not the brother of John. This is the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, he became a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. James chapter 1, verse 5, he addresses this subject of doubt. If any of you lacks wisdom, now that would be all of us at different times of our life. So that gets my attention right there. Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But look at verse 6. But let him ask, what are the next two words? In faith. So we, we need wisdom. We ask God for wisdom. But it says here, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what does doubt do? Doubt divides the mind. When we're doubting, we wonder this. Will God answer this prayer or not? I need wisdom to make a decision at work. I need wisdom to make a financial investment. I need wisdom in this relationship area. I need wisdom, and so we pray for wisdom. But the doubter, while he's praying, is wondering, is God really, is God really interested in this? I mean, God's got a lot of big things going on up there. Is God really interested in my case? Will he answer or won't he answer? I think he will, but I'm not sure. And so a double-minded man is unstable. In fact, the New Living Translation, instead of double-minded, uses the word unstable. There's no real certainty there. His mind is not made up. He's wondering and he's worrying. You know, one of the things I noticed 18 years ago, when I came to the full assurance of my own salvation, was how clear my mind got. I noticed that after I quit worrying and wondering whether or not I was saved, I could fully be in whatever moment that I was in. If I was at a ball game, my full attention was on the game. 
If I was watching a movie, my full attention was on the movie. If I was having a conversation with somebody, my full attention was on that person because my mind was no longer divided. I was no longer distracted in any way. But doubt does that. It divides the mind. And I'll show you something else, or James shows us here. Doubt deprives us of whatever it is that we're praying for. And so when you doubt and you wonder, is God going to do this or is God not or am I going to be okay or am I not okay or am I saved or am I not saved, it's going to divide your mind. You're going to be distracted. You're always going to be aloof a little bit anyway, and you'll be out there. But look in verse number 7. What else happens? It deprives you of whatever you're praying for. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And so here the man is praying for wisdom. But he's not going to get wisdom, and he's not going to get anything if he is wondering whether or not God will give him that. So doubt deprives us of what we're praying for. Uh, Something else, and this is where we get, go ahead and turn, if you would now, to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We're thinking tonight primarily about doubting Thomas. But doubt distances us from God, and it also distances us from other people. Now, in John chapter 20, this is the resurrection chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, it's Easter Sunday morning, and Jesus has come up out of that grave, and uh, he appears to Mary Magdalene. And then on Easter Sunday night, Jesus goes to the upper room in Jerusalem to appear to the disciples. This is Easter Sunday night. We read about that in verses 19 through, well, just begin in verse 19. Then the same day, that's Easter, at evening, Being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Spirit. And so here are the disciples in the upper room wondering, where's Jesus? We're hearing reports that he's alive. We haven't seen him. He did say he was coming out of the grave. We're not sure. They were doubting. Jesus showed up to deal with those doubts and to bring them to faith. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, he's one of the disciples, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. He was not in that upper room or in that, in that place there in Jerusalem, probably the upper room where Jesus appeared. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, we call Thomas doubting Thomas, and there is a sense in which that is true. Here, Jesus basically would have called him unbelieving Thomas because Thomas said, it's not Thomas saying, well, you know, I'm really struggling. I'm not sure. Maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. Thomas said, unless I see him for myself, here's the deal with me. I will not believe. After eight days... His disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and Jesus stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And so the point I'm making here 
is that on that Easter Sunday night, when Jesus showed up to the disciples to help them with their doubts, to bring them to the fullness of faith, Thomas let his doubt slash unbelief prevent him from being with the disciples. And as a result of that, he missed an encounter with Jesus, and he missed the company of those disciples. Iron sharpens iron, so he was not sharpened that night while the other disciples were sharpened. So remember this about doubt. Doubt distances us from God and from others. You know, you wonder in life, you see a lot of people get saved and a lot of people get involved in the church, not just our church. This is any church and every church. And then years go by, time goes by, and you don't see those people as much anymore. What happened? Well, maybe they moved away. Maybe something else happened. But maybe in some cases what really happened was they began to doubt God. They doubted His Word. They questioned His Word. They doubted His goodness. God, if you're really good, why? They doubted His ability and His power to work on their behalf and to take care of them. And they let, instead of letting those doubts drive them to Jesus in prayer and say, Lord, I don't understand it. Does it make sense? But God, I don't want to live in this, in this doubt. I want to live with faith. Instead of letting their doubts drive them to Jesus, their doubts drove them from Jesus, from the church, and from other believers. And that is what had happened to Thomas. And so doubt distances us from God and from the people of God. A fourth thing I would say as a problem with doubt, it dilutes our commitment to God. We all love God, and hopefully we have committed our lives to not only to serve Him and follow Him, but to live for Him and to trust Him with our lives. But doubt has a way of diluting our commitment to God. Now, go back to the first book in the Bible, if you would, Genesis chapter 3. And this is one of those sermons the Bible says not, if you like to study Bible verses and just pull out these Bible truths, this is what you would call an old-fashioned Bible study. And that's what I like. In Genesis chapter 3, we're familiar with this. And what happened with Adam and Eve? Chapter 3. Now the serpent, that's talking about the devil. By this time, Lucifer has been cast out of heaven to the earth, and he now has taken the form of a serpent. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, he said to Eve, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And so the first thing that... The devil does. He comes along, and he starts causing Eve to doubt, and he starts making Eve question what God has said and when, when God had told Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, in fact, we see here, notice the devil's question. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You see, the devil has just enough truth in his lies to make the lies fly. If the devil would have come to Eve and said there is no God, she would have known that was a lie because she knew there was a God. She and Adam walked with God every day in the cool of the evening. But now the devil is coming and he's putting a question mark where God has put a period, but not only that, he's distorting what God has said. Notice the devil's question. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Look in chapter 2 and verse 16. Let's notice what God actually said. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, 
God never said you can't eat from any of these trees. In fact, God said you can eat from all of the trees. Look at verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God said to Adam, look at all these trees, apple trees, orange trees, peach trees, lemon trees. If anybody wants to eat a lemon, you might just want a lemon juice in your tea or water or something. But all these trees, and God said, you can eat from any of these trees, Adam, except this one tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, stay away from that tree. All right, that's pretty clear. But when the devil comes along, notice what he does. Remember this about the devil, he's a pervert. Now, that has a lot of application to it, but I'm talking about it tonight in the context. He perverts the Word of God and the ways of God. And here he says, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Well, no, God God didn't say that. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may not eat the fruit of the tree. We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, God actually never said you couldn't touch it. God just said you can't eat it. But see, the devil has come along, and he's getting, he's, what he's doing, this is the devil's trick. He is enticing Eve into a conversation. And in that conversation, there are untruths and there's confusion. And so now as Eve's getting in this conversation, she is saying things that herself, she's wrong too. God never said, you can't touch it. He just said, you shall not eat from that tree. The best advice I could give you is the best advice I could give myself. Never have a conversation with the devil. You will lose every time. He's more experienced than we are. He is, he's smarter than we are. He has tripped up people who loved God, perhaps, more than we do, who were closer to God, perhaps, than we are, and certainly who were used by God greater than we'll ever be used by God. However God may use us, he's not going to use us as much as he used David. David wrote a lot of the Psalms. Uh, David was the king, man after God's own heart. And yet the devil tripped it. So I'm saying when the devil comes at you and puts a question, the devil will always put a question in your mind. Has God really said, that's what that means. Has God indeed said that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Has God indeed said that all things work together for good? Has God indeed said that he's going to meet all your needs? Has God really said that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? Has God really said that? And we say, well, now wait a second. Yes, he said that. He really did say that. And the way I know it's true is, and we start, now we're in a conversation with the devil. When the devil puts that question into your mind, you need to have a quick response. And you need to, whatever that response is for you, Whether it's just to quote a scripture verse, that's what Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 4, when the devil came to Jesus and starts asking all these questions and trying, you know, if you're the Son of God, and so on, literally, since you're the Son of God, Jesus knew he was the Son of God. But when he starts doing all this to Jesus, Jesus didn't engage in a conversation. What did Jesus do? He quoted a scripture. This is why it says in James, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The word resist means to stand against. When the devil comes at you, there are a lot of things that you and I can do wrong when the devil comes at us. 
One thing is we can get in a conversation with him. Another thing we can do is run because we're scared of him. Another thing we can do is to give in to the enticements of sin that he's putting before us. The smartest thing we can do when the devil comes at us is to resist him, to stand against him. And the best way to do that is to quote back to him a word of God, to quote the Scripture. Something else you can say to the devil, this is what I say to him all the time, it's basically quoting a Scripture, but it's just saying in a slightly different way, when the devil comes to me and says, John, this promise that God has made to you, this thing that God has allowed into your life, if, if he was really good, other people seem to maybe have blessings you don't have. If God were really good, why would, why would you not have those blessings? You know what my response to that garbage, my response is this, I'm trusting Jesus. That's it. I'm trusting Jesus. That pretty much shuts him down. See, in Revelation chapter 12, we read these words. They overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And so the word of our testimony is our faith in the blood of the Lamb. And so when the devil comes at us and makes us doubt and wonder, the best thing you can say is I'm trusting Jesus, period, end of conversation. And if he keeps on, I'm trusting Jesus. And if he keeps on, I'm trusting Jesus. If he keeps on, I'm trusting Jesus. And what's going to happen after a while of you not only saying that you're trusting Jesus, but of the devil seeing you really are trusting Jesus, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He will go in the other direction. Why? Because he cannot stand the name of Jesus and he cannot stand to be in the presence of someone who is truly trusting the blood, the promises, and the provision of Jesus Christ. And yet, here we see Eve got into a conversation. We've all done it, but it's a horrible thing to do, and it dilutes our commitment to God. And then in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And so now, the devil is saying to Eve, God is a liar. God says, if you eat the fruit, you're going to die, and I'm telling you, no, you won't. But he didn't start out with a lie. He started out with a doubt. He started out adding something to what God had said, questioning God's goodness, questioning God's clear command. They got into a conversation. Now Eve's thinking they can't even touch the tree, and the serpent now comes out and shows his true colors. You will not surely die. Verse 5, now here the devil is reasoning with Eve. She's rationalizing, he's rationalizing with Eve. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, the devil said, Eve, the reason God doesn't want you eating of the forbidden, of of this particular fruit, he didn't call it forbidden, but of that fruit, because God knows when you eat it, your eyes are going to be open, and you're going to be as smart as God. What was the devil saying? The devil was saying, Eve, God doesn't want you to experience what's best for you. And that is at the heart of the devil's temptations. God is trying to hold something back from you that would be good for you. God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But he just says that because he's trying to prevent you from having a good time. Listen to me, friend. Anytime God says, thou shalt not, he's trying to protect you. And anytime God says, thou shalt, he's saying, help yourself to happiness. Now, I heard a pastor say it that way one time. I never have forgotten it. It's so good, and it's so true. But the devil is saying, God's just trying to hold, hold something back from you that would be good for you. And now, it, it's like a boxer 
getting his opponent on the ropes and just pounding away. And now that, that the opponent is weak and that opponent is losing his balance and his equilibrium and he's not strong. And here comes the knockout blow. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now the woman's no longer listening to what God said. She's just looking at the fruit. And she's saying, I'm hungry. And that looks good. When she saw that it was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now, what did I say a moment ago? Doubt is the mother sin. It is the sin that gives birth to other sins. And that leads me to the next point I want to make, the fifth point. The fifth problem with doubt is that doubt damages our lives. I'm giving you reasons tonight that you should be a believer and not a doubter. But we've got to get this one. Doubt damages our lives. Three negative things I see happening in the lives of Adam and Eve after they gave in to doubt and committed the sin of eating the forbidden fruit. Number one, they were afraid. Look in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? God was ready to go on a walk. And yet Adam and Eve had sinned, and that sin had created fear. Verse 10, so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. The first way that doubt damaged Adam and Eve is that it made them afraid. What did I say? Doubt is the mother's sin. Is fear a sin? Yes. I mean, fear of a Fear of a hurricane, fear of a snake, fear of impending danger, that's not a sin. That's God's given us some natural fears to protect us. But I'm talking about ongoing fear, where you are paralyzed by fear. Is that a sin? Yes. That's why Jesus said, don't be afraid. But here we see Adam and Eve hiding from God. Why did they hide from God? Because they were afraid. But why were they afraid? Because they had sinned. But why did they sin? Because they started doubting God. Doubt is the mother's sin. In this case, doubt gave birth to eating of the forbidden fruit. That gave birth to being afraid. And so doubt damages our life. Not only that, because of this sin, they were in conflict with each other. Look in verse 11. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave me. It's her fault, God. Notice he didn't just say, the woman. He's actually not only blaming Eve, he's blaming God. He said, the woman whom you gave me. In other words, God, I was doing fine down here on earth till you put me asleep and took out one of my ribs and gave me this woman, and now look what she did. So the reason I ate the fruit is because of the woman, so it's her fault, but it's partly your fault too. Now, isn't that messed up? Now you've got Adam, but they're in conflict with each other, and uh, and, and, and notice in verse 13, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I heard Rick Warren say one time, the man blamed the woman, the woman blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. And that's pretty good when you think about that. But they're not accepting responsibility. Eve should have said, I'm sorry, God. Or Adam should have said that. God, I messed up. 
Eve should have said, God, I messed up. And yet, instead of admitting that they messed up, listen, friend, we all mess up in life. And the best thing that you can do when you mess up is just to admit you've messed up. We have seen in modern culture that the lie, the cover-up, is usually worse than the original sin. And if they would have just said, God, we messed up, we're sorry, could you find it in your heart to please forgive us? He certainly would have. He forgave them anyway. But here, they're having conflict. And look in verse 24. I'll show you some more problems this caused. They were driven out of their own home. Verse 24. So God drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, the reason God cast them out of the Garden of Eden was not that God was mad. In fact, this is one of the first expressions of grace in all of the Bible. Maybe the first expression of grace, after Adam and Eve sinned, God killed an animal. There was a a blood sacrifice. God took the skin of that animal, and God covered Adam and Eve. So just that's a picture of Jesus. So that's the first example of grace. That's, I think, in Genesis 3.21. In 3.24, God drives them out of the Garden of Eden. Why? Because in the Garden of Eden was the tree of life. And if you ate from the tree of life, you would live forever. And God knew that if Adam and Eve ate the tree of life, they would live forever. Think about this. In a fallen, sinful state. They would live forever in a body that would age, but that would never die. They would live forever in a body that would get sick, but would never get well. They would live forever in a fallen, imperfect world. And so as an act of grace, God drove them out of the Garden of Eden, and he put flaming swords guarding the tree of life and angels there, the cherubim, so that they could not eat that. But the point I'm making is nonetheless true. Because of their sin, they were driven out of their home. Now, I'm talking to you tonight about the problem with doubt. And on the fifth problem, I've given three subpoints. Think about this. They were afraid, they were in conflict, and they were driven out of their home. And then the sixth thing I would say, the sixth problem with doubt, doubt ultimately destroys our faith. Doubt does to your faith what termites do to your house. It eats away at it one bite at a time. And if you don't deal with the doubt, you are in trouble. So we have just dealt with the six problems of doubt. Now, you still listen? Say amen. Now, I've got a problem because I'm out of time. And you've got a problem because I haven't given you the solution to doubt. And so we're going to pray that next Wednesday night you don't stay home and watch the Wheel of Fortune, right? Or that you don't go to the mall or that you don't go somewhere else, but that you come back to church because I, won't, I don't want to rush through Uh, Tonight we had a six-point sermon. Next week we'll only have a three-point sermon. But I want to develop those three points next week uh, thoroughly and practically and in a way that will help you. Say, well, now, John, before you pray and send us home, some of you who are really doubting tonight, maybe you're doubting God's Word, maybe you're doubting God's goodness, Maybe you're doubting God's ability to take care of you. Some of you are saying, John, normally when you get done with your sermon, I'm glad. I'm ready. It should end. But some of you might be thinking tonight, this is one sermon I kind of wish was going to keep going because you were just about to tell us how to defeat doubt. And you've listed out 
all these problems that doubt causes. And some of you are thinking tonight, it divides the mind. I have a divided mind. It deprives me of what I'm praying for. I've experienced that. It distances me from God and from others. Yes, it dilutes my commitment to God. Yes, it damages our lives. There's fear. There's conflict in relationships because of doubt. It ultimately destroys our faith. Some of you tonight may be thinking that your faith has almost been destroyed by doubt. And there may only be one person, but there are probably more tonight who are thinking, I know you're going to deal with the answer and how we can get over this next week. But is there just one word you could give me tonight that would help me now so that I don't have to wait till next Wednesday night to get the full answer to that question? And yes, there is. The cure for doubt is faith. I heard a pastor say this one time, and when he said it, I said to myself, I can't believe you just said that. It's so simple. It's like saying the sun is out in the day and the moon is out at night. I mean, we already knew that. Why would you even say that? And yet the more I thought of what he had said, the more it became obvious to me that within the simplicity of what he had said was the solution to doubt. Here's what he said. He said, if you are doubting God, you can't be trusting God. Now think about that. Well, okay, that that is true. You can't be fully trusting God if you're doubting God. And then he said, if you're trusting God, you can't be doubting God. I mean, if your mind is made up, I'm trusting God with this child, with this conflict, with this disease, with this financial. I'm trusting God. Well, if you really are, you can't be doubting God. And so, we'll develop it more fully next week. The cure for doubt, the cure for questioning God, is believing God. This is what Jesus said to Thomas. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus said the same thing. He's saying, Thomas, you're caught up in the quagmire right now of doubt-unbelief. Stop that. Okay, Lord, I want to stop it, but how? And Jesus said, believe. It sounds so simple. It almost one of those things, it sounds like it's too good to be true. I'm telling you, folks, it's so good. It's so true that it is good. That that thing in your life, whatever it may be, that you're questioning, that you're anxious about, that you're worried about, that you're doubting, if you would just make a little shift. Chuck Swindoll said, it was Chuck Swindoll or James Dobson one night said this, I heard on the radio, there's a fine line between sanity and insanity. Sometimes we all feel like we've crossed that line, right? There's also a fine line between doubt and believe. What is doubt? It is faith that is struggling to believe, but it is at least faith that is trying to believe. Remember, Only believers really doubt. And what I'm saying to you tonight, and what God has said to all of us through his word, the cure for doubt is faith. Make a little mental shift, a little heart shift, a little faith shift, instead of saying, I wonder, will he really? Is it going to be okay? Do all things work together for good? Just just a little, I'm talking a little, a little shift that says, 
God's word is true. His character is impeccable. And he will take care of me no matter what. And so tonight, if you would say to God, God, with this, instead of doubting and questioning and worrying and wondering and being afraid, I choose to trust you. My mind is made up. You're going to notice the greatest change that could ever take place in your life. Your mind's going to be clear. Your heart's going to be light. You're going to have peace. And that little shift can change everything about your life. Amen.